All right, we're live. So you try to avoid the uh, wood. Nice, that's better. That's better. You're doing that exactly what we had in mind. Yeah, that's right. Now he's gonna get more. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, so it's um, portion via he, and he lived. And it is the last portion in the book of Bereshit. Joshua, take it away, sir. Okay, okay. Um, so, anytime you want. I know. <laughs> Just fucking my thoughts. Because I'm place here. Uh, I thought it would be really interesting to talk today a little bit about faith. Um, and I thought that I would use an illustration, hopefully, that um, will make some sense to everybody. Uh, Sophia, if your daddy says that if you eat all your food, you can have ice cream, do you believe him? You, you think you think just because he said that, it's going to happen? Yes. Well, yes. Why? Does your daddy do what he says he'll do? Yes. He does? Yes. Good. That's very good. <laughs> I know. Pass the test there, Greg. It's live, right? Sometimes it's live, yeah. So what if, if your daddy says that you're gonna go to the beach one year, do you believe him? Yeah. What if it doesn't happen tomorrow? What if it's like many days away? Do you still believe it's gonna happen? Yeah, because he said a year. Yeah, well there we go. You because you because he said it, right? Yeah. This is what they call in the Bible, it's like faith. You believe it's going to happen. But it's more than just thinking it's going to happen. What, if your daddy says, if you if you eat ice, you're all your food, you have ice cream, what do you do? Yeah, food. Eat all your food, right. You do what he said to do because he's going to give you something for it, right? Right. Right. And Zoe, if you would like, if your daddy says that you can have ice cream if you eat all your food, do you eat all your food? Yeah. There we go. <laughs> all right. Passing, passing big time. This is fantastic. And, and Aaron Henry, do you like ice cream? You do? Oh, good. Okay, so Aaron Henry also likes ice cream. So this is this is an important lesson to learn. But um, but the idea here is that faith is to believe that that God's going to do what He said He would do, just because He said He would do it. Like your daddy, Sophia. Your daddy says He's going to do something, and He does it, even if it's a long time away, and you don't have it doesn't happen right away. You believe it will happen eventually because. You trust your daddy. Your daddy does what he says he'll do. God is even better. He always does what he'll say he'll do. And he has complete control over it. So it always happens. Jacob, in this week's parasha, exhibits faith. Because he believes that God is going to do what he said he would do. Even though it hasn't happened yet. And one of the examples that we have here this week is in... Uh, it's actually in Hebrews 11, and it comes from this week's Torah portion. So Hebrews chapter 11, we are in verse 21. It says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, that phrase, bowing in worship over the head of his staff, it shows up a kind of interesting place. Let's see. If you read, it doesn't actually show up really with the blessing of the sons, which is what that passage is talking about. It's actually a different part of the story, but it's part of the general, the general account. It shows up in chapter 47, verse 31. 
It says, in Israel prostrated himself towards the head of the bed. So he bowed, right? Like we say here in Hebrews 11. But what is it that we're having? What's the conversation then? The conversation is Jacob talking to Joseph and saying, swear to me, promise me, you'll bury me where? In the land. In the land. In the land of Israel. Because the land of Israel is what God promised him, right? He was believing, acting in faith, that God was going to give him what he promised him. Now, the passage here I think is kind of cool. So he says, um, he tells him to swear. Does, does anyone, does this remind you of anything? Where else have we seen someone swearing to do something? Joshua. There you go. Perfect. In fact, the story is very similar because Elie he tells Eliezer, um, yeah, I want you to do this for me. And he's like, but he insists. You know, you need to swear. Promise. You'll do it. And it was also about the land. It was about, well, it's about, yes, it's about the land. about God's promises that are kind of linked to the land. Um, because the other thing that he says, Jacob here says, do kindness and truth with me. That same phrase, kindness and truth, is also a reference from Eliezer when he goes to find Rebecca because he asks God to do that. For Abraham, yeah, yeah. he says, if you will do kindness and truth for my master Abraham, speaking to God, then, you know, let the woman who comes out be the right one for Isaac. And sure enough, it's Rebecca. And to my father-in-law's point here, this is connected to God's promises. Because what, what are the things that God promised Abraham? Just that. One, his family would be multiplied. Right? Seed. Two. Children. He would receive land. He would receive the land of Israel. Well, there's lots of other ones you could throw in there. He will be a blessing. Uh, you could also throw in that, um, his, that his people will be God's people and God will be their God. There's a lot of little other blessings. But the two big ones are children and the land. Very good. And that's exactly what we see here. Abraham is talking about children and talking about marriage and wanting to have you know, grandkids and whatnot. So he's, he's thinking seed. But Jacob in this week's parasha is thinking land. And he specifically makes a point of insisting that, that Joseph will act on the promise that God has given him to bury him in the land. So when Hebrews 11 is talking about faith, they use this as an example. It's faith. Faith for what God would do for him. Also, um, let's see if I can find the passage here. It says... I'm looking for the one where he's blessing the sons. Um, yeah, he was making you like Abraham, Abraham and Manasseh. But um, the point being that um, on the blessing, that would be uh, forty-eight, fifteen. Shepherd me. Ah, well, that, here we go. We have this again. Um, his promise again is exactly what we're talking about. Abraham's the two blessings that God gave Abraham. He blesses the sons. He says, may they proliferate abundantly like fish within the land. So again, you get that same idea. There's seed and there's land. So Jacob, so Hebrews 11, I think this has kind of always kind of confused me a little bit. Like, what is it that Jacob exhibits as faith? What is it specifically? And really what it boils down to is he believed so strongly in God's promises, even though he hadn't seen them yet. And even though he wasn't going to see them before he died. But he was so convinced, he actually wanted to be buried in the land. Specifically talks about it as the land of Canaan. It's not his. But he's so convinced that God will give it to his people. Burial is an important location. Um, just recently, uh, was talking with the McDonald's when they were here and overheard that when they were much, much younger, they had a conversation about where they wanted to be buried, which 
have to say that's not something that my wife and I have had quite yet, but um, maybe we should. Good courtship conversation. Right, exactly right. Um, but they were younger. They, they, they hadn't had kids yet. Um, they were married. And uh, David asked uh, his wife, where do you want to be buried? And she was, you know, um, uh, she was trying to think where she would, and she thought, well, I guess it would be somewhere close to where my family's from, you know, home, right? And his question back to her was so poignant, why are we here? If it's so important that she would want to be buried there, why are we in this place? And I think that's a great question to ask, and I think that is so um, poignant to this portion. Jacob says he wants to be buried there. He wants everyone, when they go and visit his gravesite, to go there. And Joseph said the same thing. Right, Joseph said the same thing. Joseph learned from his father, same, same faith, right? And this insistence means that he believes that God's going to give them that land. I mean, they're living in Egypt. Do you know how hard it is to go all the way from Egypt to Hebron to go visit, you know, a parent's gravesite? I mean, you know, how hard is it to New York, right? And we have airplanes. Right. So, but, so Jacob, I think, is acting in faith to say, where I'm going to be buried is where we're all going to live. So it's going to be normal, easy. Go visit, you know, great-great-great-grandfather's gravesite because mm. it's in the country. Short walk from the capital, whatever. And the point is that that's what I think he's getting at. And now all you need is armored guns. I know, right? <laughs> but it is, it is amazing and tragic that um, the, the portion, the passages, this passage, by the way, Yishai Fleischer was very passionate about because it's about the burial in Hebron, which is where he works, and he's very strong about that, and then also about Joseph being buried, uh, which is, ironically enough, the two burial places that are referenced in this book, both of them were purchased, according to... Um, according to uh, Jacob. And both of them right now are, uh, you know, uh, claimed by the Palestinians. It's like, well, the two places we actually have, you know, purchase of sale, and yet. It's amazing. It is indeed. Well, the, the, um, the thing that Scott and I were talking about before was if the land is so important, and, and I think we all agree that it is, why did they stay? As at the end, you know, I you want to bring up uh, who you were listening to? Oh, sure. We were listening to the uh, uh, D. Thomas Lancaster on the FFOZ uh, uh, March this morning. And his, uh, his point was, uh, you know, our passage starts out with uh, Israel lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. But the first, only the first five of those years were years of famine. The first two years of famine had already gone by. They lived for the next five years, so that was the seven years of famine. The remaining 12 years of his life that he lived out was post-famine in Egypt. And the question was, why did they stay? Why did they stay? Right. Why didn't they return to the land that God had promised? And if, and if Joseph was so powerful that he was able to say, everybody stop the presses, I'm taking wagons and all kinds of stuff to go get my family and bring them back, at some point, why didn't he? Well, you know, we all survived the famine, and you know, the retirement plan is really good here, but right. I really got to get out of here. Right. You got a question. What did FFOC, what was their conclusion? His answer was they had become comfortable huh. in the place where they were. Which is exactly what Rabbi Gimpel says when he comes to the States mm. and talks to the Orthodox here. Why, why are you still here? And uh, I was mentioning to Scott that uh, all of the commentary in the Gutnik 
written by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the vast majority of it was before they had the land. They, now they had the land. But he talks about that, how important it will be to go to the land and be right. have the exile finished. But they're still here. Right. Well, I think, and I think that um, that's an excellent illustration today. But also, I think that the other thing is, it's such a good reminder even to us. I think, how many times do you feel like I should do X or I should do that? But I don't really want to because I'm comfortable. I'm in a place that's easy. I'm doing what I've always done. You know, that really, you know, I think that just being in this movement is a demonstration of faith. And that you're willing to say, um, yeah, it's so easy to just stay where you're at in the church. Yeah. And, you know, Saturday is, is a day where we mow the lawn and we, you know, and have pork barbecue. And it's so easy to, to just stick to what you've always known. So changing that is actually a step out of that. Yeah. But I think there may be also be a more nefarious um, side to the story as well. I think that if you, uh, this, the, the sages highlight, Rashi's commentary highlights that the, the, the Egyptians lead them into Canaan, and then they follow them out. And the Rashi notes that this is actually a sign of honor, that they, they led them at first, leading the procession to bury Jacob. And, uh, and it's like they thought of themselves as the most important. But having seen how moved the, 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 the nations around them were really watching, um, they recognized how great Jacob was, and they let his sons lead them back into Egypt. That's a great interpretation. I think it also highlights the importance of Jacob. But I think there is also potentially a dark side of the story, which is, well, if you're if Egypt is behind you, where is escape? That's in front. So the Egyptian forces are in front, pushing them back into the land. But if you're going back into Egypt, where's the escape? It's behind you. Where are the Egyptian forces? They're behind you. There is definitely a feel in this story that. The Pharaoh at the time, whether because he believed they were good luck or whatever, he wasn't letting them leave. And the whole idea of this swearing, the, the sages say that when Joseph swore to, to marry his father, it was necessary. Because when he went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's like, no, you can't leave. Of course you can't leave. Only because of the oath that he'd made to his father on his deathbed that he let him bury him in the land of Israel. And that's why Joseph couldn't be buried in the land of Israel, because they weren't going to let him out. Um, it's interesting, there's a, um, along those lines, a funny story from the Midrash that um, Yishai Fleischer highlighted in his podcast. The, uh, so there's a tradition that, you know, you know, Pharaoh was kind of seen as kind of this divine character in Egypt and all these super powerful capabilities that he had. There's a really funny one, I think, that, you know, supposedly he never went to the bathroom, you know, that kind of thing. Um, he's just beneath him, right? So the other tradition is that he spoke all the languages of the world. He spoke all 70 languages. Well, um, Joseph, uh, when he gets named Viceroy at the time, he doesn't speak all the different languages, um, and that's a bit of a problem at first, but then the angel Gabriel apparently comes and teaches him all the languages. This is actually in the Psalms, and it's the language I never knew. It's actually a quote from one of the Psalms of the day, the Psalm of the day for uh, the fifth day of the week. Um, but then, uh, apparently, in this, this Midrash, Pharaoh doesn't know Hebrew. Joseph is having to teach him Hebrew, because that's the one language that Pharaoh doesn't know. So, but thankfully for Pharaoh, no one else around them knows it either. So no one knows that Joseph is, you know, kind of instructing Pharaoh on how to say things because Pharaoh, uh, it just, no one knows, right? So Pharaoh, he's like a secret between the two of them. So Pharaoh says, look, I can't, I can't let this out. If they know that I don't know all the languages of the world, then this is going to make me look bad. And, you know, so you swear to me that you won't tell anyone. And Joseph says, okay, I can do that. Well, later, 
Joseph comes to Pharaoh and says, I got to bury my father. And I know you can't go. Well, but I, I swore to him. I promised that I would bury him. Well, just break your oath. And Joseph said, well, I, I could do that. But um, if I broke that oath, I, I have to break the other one. And let everyone know what you can't do. No. No. <laughs> nice. so, yes, sir. But I was uh, remarking that on this same topic of, of the land and being out and, and in it and so forth, um, the same commentary in the Gutnik regularly says that, uh, especially in this portion, that when we're in exile, we should feel uncomfortable. We should feel out of place. We should feel like we're not you know, there's some great gospel songs that talk about that. Um, but I, I wonder if if we tend to lose sight of that in this movement. We feel out of place because the church is, is not exactly comfortable for us any longer. And going to the synagogue is oftentimes uncomfortable for us. So we, we tend to feel uneasy, but I don't know if it's the right uneasy. If, if, it, if it's uneasy because of and whatnot, um, rather than a longing for the side and putting it back to the way it should be, which we not yet experienced, right? So these people had experience. They knew what it was like to be in the land and were taken out of it. We've, you know, we've never experienced that. We've also not seen master face to face. So we may be more blessed according to the scriptures, but... You don't know what you're missing. We don't know what we're missing. Although, I, having actually lived in the land of Israel for two years, I do know a little bit of what I'm missing. It's yeah. pretty awesome, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I do look forward to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. It's, it's about, but I think that, ironically enough, I, to your point, I think the beginning of that is actually where we are, though. I think that that uncomfortability in sort of this ne nether world is, is not a bad thing, because right. it, it emphasizes that we recognize that things are not what they should be. And that it's often uncomfortable to practice the Holocaust. Right. You know, when it would be a lot easier to not. It would be uh, sometimes, definitely. And, and I think also, it's not a, um, I think that thinking ahead to Messiah's plan and a stage in which the whole world follows God, you know, you kind of get a taste right now of what's, of what's missing in that. Because we're not doing that. And we're, it's hard for us to keep the, I mean, if, if you go to Israel and you stay there for a while and you spend a Shabbat, wow, it's really easy to keep Shabbat in Israel. Um, it's really hard to keep Shabbat here. You have to make a real conscious effort at it. And even then, you kind of have to, you know, fudge a few things here and there, usually, unless you live a very orthodox life in a very small community and so forth. But um, in the end, I think that that, that uncomfortability we feel is, is, is good because it reminds us that we don't have what we want yet. But you're right. We do need to focus on what it is we're going for. Um, speaking of which, that is interesting this week, which Messiah gets mentioned this week's Torah portion. Um, in chapter 49, there's this blessing of Judah. Uh, Judah is a lion's cub. Uh, my brother Judah had lions throughout his room growing up. Um, you can guess where that came from. So uh, this week's portion, though, it mentions specifically that um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a scholar from among his descendants, until Shiloh shall arrive, and his will will be an assemblage of nations. So the idea is that uh, Judah is given leadership and, uh, and, and royalty as a blessing, and um, it's going to continue up until Messiah comes. I mean, really, I don't think it's an until in the sense that, like, well, now it stops, but more like he is the, the final one because he's going to last forever. So um, that will kind of wrap that up. Did, 
You got that in the uh, Gutnik version? What he just said? Yeah, 49.10. Yeah. Here, lay that out. That's cool. Yeah, so, so the where they add a little bit in between is, The stick of authority will never leave Yehuda, nor scholars from the Yehuda's descendants, until the coming of Mashiach, to whom the kingship belongs. He will gather the people. Isn't that cool? Very cool. Yeah. No, it's, it's good. This, I was telling Scott, your father read the blessing to Joseph out loud in this room. Must have been ten years ago, and my daughters were so taken by the 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 phrasing, they were astonished, and immediately we had to get this version. It was it was cool. The um the fullness of this the blessing is also really neat. Um, Jacob's blessings of his children are oftentimes tied to things that they did in their lifetime. So Reuben gets in trouble for some nefarious, not so wise things that he did. Um, yeah, Simeon and Levi, uh, they get separated from, uh, interestingly enough, they, they apparently are quite dangerous together, so Jacob made a point of splitting them up throughout the land of Israel, um, and uh, curses their anger. Then we see in, uh, with Judah, there's a tradition Midrash teaches that Judah's like, oh man, here comes me, boy, dad's in a bad mood today, and he's just fully expecting that he's going to get in trouble for some of the things that he's done. But the Midrash goes on, uh, and the Rashi commentary goes on to talk about some of these things actually line up with things that he did that were good. Um, and as an example, you know, it says that um, uh, from the prey, my son, you elevated yourself. Well, there's one, so they, they interpret that as saying when Joseph was going to be killed by his brothers, it was Judah who stood up for him. Said, no, 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 we can't, we can't kill our brother. Now, granted, his solution was selling him into slavery, so that was not so good. But but Jacob recognizes that you know he's made a step in the right direction, and he blesses him specifically because of that. And you kind of get this. Um, we see a similar thing with Joseph. If you flip over to the blessing to Joseph, um, this starts in verse twenty-two. There's a lot of really cool ones here, and we'll probably have to spend a lot more time in it. But um, one thing it says here that uh, his bow was firmly in place and his arms were gilded from the hands of the mighty power of Jacob. From there, he shepherded the stone of Israel. The Midrash goes crazy on these passages, partly because they're extremely poetic. What I just read you in English is only one of many multiple interpretations of what the words actually mean. Um, but this passage, one of the things they really tie in on here is his strength, and they, they, they connect that to his resistance to Potiphar's wife. Um, and they said here is uh, from the hands of the mighty power of Jacob. And he references his father because it's a tradition that, that one of the reasons why Joseph holds on there and doesn't do anything wrong with Potiphar's wife is he kind of sees a picture of his father in like, his mind's eye. You know, he kind of gets this idea of his dad, and he's like, I can't do that to my dad. I can't dishonor him. You know, he raised me better than this is basically what it boils down to. And so he, he strengthens himself, and he, he resists temptation. And... It's so interesting that it's like that out of that, that was from the God of your father, and he will help you. And with Shaddai, he will bless you with blessings of heaven from above, blessings of the deep crouching below. And they, uh, so this blessings that come from God, it's almost like, again, in, re in response to his reward, in response to his obedience. Yes, sir. So in the Aleph Beta, one of the Aleph Beta videos, I forgot which one, for this week's portion. Yeah. I believe Rabbi David Foreman touches on the, well, it had 
it had to relate with the having his bow remain unmoved and his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Yondo. Well, Robert David Foreman, uh, he expanded the archer and the bow as when Yosef was still unbeknownst to his brothers as him still being alive and the brothers were still terrified in the last week's portion and the last week's portion where where Yosef was in power over his brothers when he had them accused of being as spies and Rabbi David Corman said that even though Yosef had the bow to strike against his brothers, he still had that will and knew that I shouldn't do this. And although bows are meant to be fired arrows, Yosef still held that bow back. And he had that initial one not to fire it, as you would probably know, holding back the bow for that long is gonna real, really tire you out. So the hands of the mighty one is supposed to mean that God assisted him in giving that strength up to hold that bow to keep back from firing that arrow at his brothers. I think it's a great interpretation, a very interesting look at it, and I think it helps also to think of Jake, uh, Joseph as being a lot more human. Um, I mean, if you read the end of this Torah portion, it kind of seems that Joseph, he's forgiven his brothers, but he doesn't particularly like them. Uh, the very end of the Torah portion, his brothers are afraid. Mm. And according to the Midrash, the reason they're afraid is that he doesn't really want to see them anymore. After Jacob dies, they don't really get around together as much, and they get nervous that he's like, he's going to do something bad to them. I think the reason that they feel that way is because I think that he, he did forgive them, and I think he really did believe that God did acted faithfully, but the relationship was hard to rebuild. That was a big blow. And, you know, the trust and the, and the companionship, even as brothers, I think it was difficult for him to, you know, act like everything was normal. So I think that that, that illustration is really good, this idea that, like, he's having to hold himself back. It's not like, oh, well, it's fine. You sold me into slavery. I spent, you know, most of my the best parts of my life, you know, in a prison and working for a foreign master. It's okay. Um, you know, we're all brothers here. You know, I would have done the same thing if I'd been you. No, he we doesn't have to pay taxes. Right, I mean, no, he, he doesn't look at it that way. I think, I think it's very possible that it was a struggle for Joseph and that he really had to cling to that idea that you're talking about, that, that God um, did this for a reason and that this was good and this was okay and he forgives them. But I don't think that it was easy. And I think that it was something that he had to fight for, like you're, like you're talking about. So that, I think that's an excellent illustration. And I think then you see that, that picture of... Um, you see that picture of uh, the imagery here and then the blessings that come out of that. Again, God blessing, Jacob blessing Joseph because of his, of his restraint. Rabbi Foreman mentions, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs also says that it was, um, well, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says it was, um, I think, a convention in those days that um, uh, payback or revenge between siblings waited until the father died. Mm. Which we see well, Esau. You see it in the Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> the mother, but yes. Um, and then it's also here. You can tell immediately as soon as the father dies, the brothers are like, now Joseph could do something. Right. He wouldn't. 
Well, Jacob right. was alive, right. but now he can. Right. And you see with Esau as well, he says, when when Isaac dies, then I'm going to kill Jacob. Right, right, absolutely. And I think that's, that's the same thing. Again, he has opportunity now. And I think that's something that's really important. Um, Joseph shows that restraint of when he has opportunity. I think it's so easy for us to do things when we... Um, when we when we don't have the opportunity, I mean, you know, if you uh, if you're a monk and you live alone with a bunch of other men, committing adultery is really hard, you know, with a woman anyway. Point is, that, like, uh, you're not married, so. yeah, well, that helps too. Yes, but so like, you know, you live on, a, on an island all by yourself. It's like, you know what? I think keeping purity is pretty easy, you know. Or like, you uh, you have to live in a uh, a commune of, of vegans. Eating pork is really difficult, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and so, but but when you have opportunity. That is really when you get tested. That, that is the test of whether or not you truly do that. That you have right. opportunity again. To do it again. And Joseph, in each of these cases, he has opportunity. With Potiphar's wife, he's in the house alone. He can do whatever he wants. He chooses not to. When he's, after his father dies, he is the viceroy of Egypt. And, I mean, you know, there's, a, there's some mirage about how, like, it would look bad if he killed his brothers at that point. But realistically... He's the number two guy in charge. I mean, who's really going to stand up to him? He chooses not to. Well, even David, the man in prison, right. he let him go yeah. until he died. Right. He said, now take care of him after I'm gone. Right, right. Yeah, that was a perfect Italian moment. <laughs> I just make sure his, you know, he doesn't go down in peace. I do think, with the case of Joseph, though, that actions louder than words. And he, he says, not only is everything okay, but I am going to take care of you and your families. Right. And that's a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think he talked about investing in treasure. Yeah, it, it may not have been a lot of emotional attachment or, or emotional reconciliation, but did he, he absolutely did the loving thing that yeah. you would expect a godly brother to do. I know. It's almost time. I was thinking too this week, this week, like how interesting it is that Ephraim and Manasseh are picked as the way that we would bless our kids. I mean, you just had Judah's blessing. Why wouldn't that be like, oh yeah, well, bless, bless uh, God, make you like Judah. He's like a kingly guy. He's a, uh, a scholar and right and like all these amazing qualities about him. And then it was, it's kind of interesting that there's so much space in this week's portion dedicated to this back and forth regarding Ephraim and Manasseh. And like each of the other tribes kind of get like either a sentence or two or maybe a little paragraph, but there's, before all of that, there's a lot more mentioned when it comes to Ephraim and Manasseh. And I was kind of wondering like, why, what, what, why is that? And one of the commentaries here was talking about how both of the names obviously represent like both approaches to exile there's like the approach where this is not home this is not where i want to be and i'm longing to go back to my my home my land but then there's this other side where it's more like you know the the, the prime side is god made me fruitful in a land right and so it's this idea uh, in spite of the exile it's this idea of like fulfilling a divine service in in wherever you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It, you don't need to be in the land in order to fulfill the divine service. And so, when you, I guess, thinking about the combination of both, it sort of covers all the bases. Yeah. And so then it ends up being such a great blessing for, for your son. So it's like, when you're around godly people, that that's excellent. You're fulfilling your divine presence. And even when you're not, 
you should still be fulfilled Amen. in your divine presence. No matter where you are, that is our, our prayer for you, Amen. is that you will be fulfilling the, the divine mission Absolutely. for your life. And I think that you, you said Fleischer notes the contrast and burial in this, in this portion as actually has the same message. Like, so J- Jacob says, God bury me in the land of Israel, because we have to remember, we're not from here. This is not our home. But Joseph stays, because Joseph's message is, look, exile is coming, and you need to have a reminder of who you're supposed to be in exile. So Joseph stays in Egypt as almost like that, that ongoing statement of, this, don't lose track, I'm with you as it were, in exile. And you get that picture here of God, even, because that's exactly what um, Jacob, Joseph says as he's dying. He tells his brothers, look, God will stay with you. God's going to come with you, he's gonna, and he's going to take you out. Yeah. And uh, and that phrase at the end is the, um, they, they call it the code word, you know, Moses comes, and he uses the same language when he quotes God. Right. Um, and it's like this, this hint, oh, right, because this is how we know that you're the guy who's going to lead us out. Scott found out something new that I didn't even think about this, this year. Do you want to tell him? Yeah. Which was the reason why uh, Israel adopted Menashe as his two sons, or, or took them as his two sons and elevated them to the same level as all the rest of his sons. Um, which was because Joseph was his beloved son above all the other sons, the firstborn, firstborn from that of his wife. favorite wife. Um, and as such, he wanted Joseph to have a double blessing <laughs> versus all the other sons. And the, and the way of accomplishing that was by taking his two sons and elevating them to the same level as the rest of his sons and giving them all an equal portion, which meant that Joseph then had double right. of all the rest of the sons. That's so cool. I yeah, never thought of it. It's really, really neat insight. It's, uh, it's, it's yeah. kind of like um, you know, the lawyer, you know, the will, you know, how do you how do you write it just so to get the gold that you're looking for? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he does he does play that game with them. Um, and interestingly enough, then he also ends up kind of rearranging some of the uh, the way the tribes interact because Levi becomes kind of carved out as priesthood. Yet they always have twelve. Um, and that kind of stays consistent. Um, it's also interesting, one of the things they say about um, uh, God or Jacob choosing Ephraim over Menashe doesn't sit so well with Joseph, but, um, but Jacob insists, and the Midrash points out that, that Jacob knows that Joshua, that'd be my name, um, is coming from Ephraim, and he's going to lead them into the land of Israel. So it's like there's this recognition that Ephraim is going to be really important. We also, of course, and ultimately enough, get that Ephraim becomes a, a symbol for the entire northern tribes. It kind of summarizes the whole thing. I think it's so interesting that the introduction to all of those blessings is, let me tell you what's going to be in the end of days. Like that, I, the only, I don't know what other explanation there is for that. The only thing I could think of is we've been talking, reading through all the prophecies about the end of days, that it's impossible to know what is coming in the end of days without being intimately familiar with his people. Because all this now goes through all of the tribes and what they're like and embedded in each of these things is probably plenty of poetry and beautiful meaning. But that was the only thing I could think of was like every prophecy we've read through, everything, it, it, it is all associated with his people. And now he's going through his, the people. Amen. And so that they're, they're 
linked. Yeah, that's a cool. Dude. Absolutely, and the sages also say that like there's a blessing. He, he, so he blessed his sons, but they point out that it's like a it's an individual blessing, which is kind of odd. Like our, it's a it's a it's a single blessing rather. So it's not like it doesn't say he blessed each of his sons or he gave a blessing to each of his sons. They say he blessed his sons generically, and um, the Rashi commentary points out that essentially what that means is that the, the the blessings for each of them kind of ultimately impact all of them. And if you think about it, it, the people of Israel really are a unit and any group. Even though these tribes give them some individuality and distinction, ultimately, they are all they all serve each other, and it's ultimately serving God. So if Judah succeeds, the whole group succeeds, kind of concept. And so we see these blessings ultimately as benefiting the whole people. Blessing socialism. <laughs> But the blend of capitalism, it starts by blessing them specifically for the good things that they did, you know, reward for... So capitalistic start with the socialist finish, you know? Yeah. Um, I know we're, uh, we're wrapping up here, um, and the children are getting hungry, but I, I did... Uh, so are the adults. I know. So I wanted to give you a chance to kind of go anywhere else you want to go in the past, because I really want to read the very end before we finish. So any other comments, places you want to drift off into, other places to look at? There was commentary on the very last oh. phrase in this that was interesting. Well, go ahead and read the, the, read the commentary, then we'll read the verse. We have to, if, you, if you didn't read the verse earlier, well, that's on you. Go ahead and read it. Uh, well, the, the, the sparks of chesidus in the, uh, the Gutnik talk about how it what an odd way to end a book of the Torah by saying they embalmed him and he was placed into a coffin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah not, right. And so, and so it, it goes on to say like, wow, this is, this is really, this is a very dismal end to, to a book of the Bible. Uh, why, why is this ending this way? And why should we be strengthened right, by reading this? Yeah. Right. And so their, basically their, their explanation is it says, how were the Jewish people able to withstand the harsh Egyptian exile? Answers the Torah, because Yosef was placed into a coffin in Egypt. And so Yosef, the dear leader of the Jewish people, who had sustained and supported them in times of famine, had not deserted them. He did not choose to spend the afterlife in a holy place where he would personally enjoy a greater degree of divine radiance. No, even after his passing, Joseph wanted to be physically with his people, even if it meant being buried in Egypt until the day when God will surely remember you, and then you should take my bones out of here. Amen. It kind of reminds me of Yeshua at the, uh, towards the end of his life. He does, this, uh, he does this promise where he says, I will not drink wine with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom. And it's like this, this commitment. It's like, I, I'm not going to really be happy until we're all together again where we're supposed to be. It's kind of the same thing here with Joseph. Joseph is like saying, I'm not going to really be content. I'm not going to be in my final resting place until we're all together where we're supposed to be because I'm not going there and leaving you here. You're gonna, you are going to take me out. I think that's kind of a cool, a cool picture and you kind of get that. I don't know, it's kind of the same. I feel like that, you know, the war movies and that kind of thing where the guy's like, you know, just leave me behind. It's like, no, I'm not leaving yeah, unless you come with me. You know? That's right. that, that kind of thing. So that was good. Thank you. All right. Um, so, yes, I do want to read the last few verses, and then we should all say the traditional phrase once we're finished. So, Joseph, this is verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely remember you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. 
Then Joseph adjured the children of Israel, saying, When God will indeed remember you, then you must bring my bones up out of here. Joseph died at the age of 110 years. They embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. If you would close us in prayer, or actually, I guess, will lead us into the Kiddush. Yes, indeed. So, um, thank you, Joshua. Outstanding. Father God, we give you thanks for the day, for the scriptures, and for Joseph. Father, that he was such a great example to us and to his people. And we pray, as the Master did, Father, that uh, we would uh, all be gathered together to the land and serve King Messiah. Amen. 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 So I think you have a uh, different